Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 92, recorded August 5th, 2012. Right, this is our 34th episode of the 90s, and mm-hmm. we'll cover the original series issues 40, 41, and 42. So we'll be wrapping up a very long series, multiple issues, which will all be coming down to this issue that we'll be doing, uh, kicking off today's episode. Right, so hopefully everybody remembers what's been going on with the Tabukin Syndrome, <laughs> since it has been, what, 85 was the last time we did this series, so it's, it's right. been, what, six issues, six yeah. episodes, so. Yeah, it's been stretched out, you know, with alternation between Taz and TNG, and then doing some of the ongoing Yeah, we had coverage. the big, we took, we basically took July to, to celebrate the, the movie. Yay! And, uh. Then we had the annual, and now we're back. Exactly. So you might want to go back and refresh your memory on 85, because we will not be doing any recaps. Right. So we'll wait for you. You think they're done now? I hope so. Let's move. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, so I have the honor and privilege of doing issue number 40, titled The Tubakan Syndrome Showdown. Published date late November 1992. Creative team writer is Howard Weinstein. Artist is Gordon Purcell, inker is Arnie Starr, colorist Tom McCraw, letterer Bob Pinaha, editor Alan Gold. The cover presents a close-up of Excelsior's saucer section from above. It's being hit by multiple directed energy weapon strikes. A damaged Marone fighter appears to be making a kamikaze run on the Excelsior. Another space battle is raging in this issue. The story opens as the Excelsior is streaking near the exploding Tabukan arsenal, which is constructed in asteroids. Captain Sulu is sending an emergency update to the Enterprise, warning them of the out-of-control fires and requesting emergency assistance. They report they have rescued as many Tabukans as they could and believe no one else is alive on the station. Sulu reports they are moving off to a safe distance in case any of the remaining warheads detonate. The entire broadcast is overheard by the Romulan Admiral and Bracara, the Marone leader. Bracara wants to move in now and gather up all the warheads and detonators they can while the Excelsior is distracted. The Romulan Admiral, Jaricus, is not so quick to act. The Excelsior is still in the area, and even they won't get too close to the arsenal with the possibility of detonations. Jaricus picks up a lyre and begins to play. The cautious Romulan states his people have found great success in patience. Bracara agrees, but her people take opportunities when they arise. She wants to lead the raiding party personally and says if she fails, all Jaricus will lose is an unworthy ally. Jaricus agrees and orders his helmsman to set course to rendezvous with the Tabukan assault force. Engage Cloak. 
Aboard the Excelsior, Captain Sulu is receiving a report stating a ship on long-range sensors just disappeared. Odds are a Romulan ship, but they can't be certain. Sulu does think it's a Romulan ship that will be headed to the arsenal. The captain states it's time for Operation Showdown Phase 2. He orders Commander Rand to signal the Enterprise. Aboard the Marone flagship, Brakara enters the bridge, and to the surprise of the ship's captain named Horalt, she takes up the captain's chair. She talks to him about attacking the arsenal. Just then a coded signal comes in from Bakara's wayward son, Vodrin. A decoded text message streams in across a viewer. He overheard the Federation communications telling of the arsenal situation. Vodrin offers his ship to the assault that he correctly assumes his mother will mount. She acknowledges and they make preparations. Meanwhile on the Enterprise, the still shaken McCoy is joined by Captain Kirk. McCoy states he thought he and Abby Wilson were goners back on Epsilon Kittage. Kirk chastises McCoy for not being able to stay out of trouble when Spock cuts in from the bridge telling Kirk they just received Commander Chekhov's signal. Kirk heads for the bridge. On the Marone flagship, Commander Heralt is successful in talking Brakara, the supreme leader of the Marone Dominion, out of commanding the attack personally. She heads back to the warbird, telling Heralt he has the honor of leading the attack and the assault team to enter the arsenal and take their prizes. Vodrin's ship is to stay cloaked and provide reinforcements if required. Kirk on the Enterprise and Sulu on the Excelsior say they are ready to move off to Tabuk 4. As they leave the burning arsenal asteroid, the Marones move in fast decloak and transport down their assault team. As the assault team make their way into the base and blast their way into what they think is the warehouse of warheads, they are confronted with a superior force of Starfleet security led by Commander Rand. It's all a trap and the assault team is taken into custody. At just that moment the two huge starships come out from behind a group of large asteroids and move in to detain the attack force. Commander Heralt calls for backup from Vodrin. Unfortunately, the visual signal coming from Vodrin's bridge shows a very happy Commander Chekhov in full control of Vodrin's ship. Kirk says he wants the cloaked Romulan ship. Spock says if the ship has been cloaked nearby as long as they suspect, it will have to decloak before it attempts to leave the area. Chekhov tells Commander Heralt he had better surrender if he cares about the lives of his crew. Heralt thinks to himself his only objective is to save Brakara. He orders Helm to set a collision course for the Excelsior. Captain Sulu recognizes what he is doing and orders evasive maneuvers immediately. As the Excelsior swings around, the Enterprise gets a clear shot and takes it to utterly destroy Heralt's ship. In the confusion, the Romulan ship slips into the neutral zone, where Kirk assumes they are still watching at a safe distance. Captain Sulu beams all the Tabukan warheads to a safe distance between them and the cloaked Romulan vessel. After they are satisfied the Romulans can see them, 
They detonate them, utterly destroying the prize the Marones and the Romulans so desired. After witnessing the warhead's destruction, Bracara admits their failure, but says they still have much to offer. The Admiral leaves her presence and says Romulans do not offer second chances. Later, Mr. Lucas bumps into Captain Sulu and congratulates him on the plan to blow up the arsenal in a controlled way to bait the Romulan and Marones in. Sulu says the Dubakans were going to do it eventually anyway, so he just talked them into accelerating their plans. Sulu congratulates Mr. Lucas on figuring out how to safely transport warheads off the arsenal, which made Sulu's entire plan possible. After the Mutual Congratulations Society completes their weekly meeting, Sulu calls Lucas on the nasty things he said about Captain Sulu when he came aboard. Lucas apologizes about that, and they end up shaking hands. Aboard the Enterprise, McCoy asks Kirk what he thinks of Captain Sulu. Kirk says that he is the best, and he is happy to have Sulu out there if they ever need him. Both ships streak off in different directions. The end. So there's the wrap-up. It's wrapped up. Another clever situation where those experienced, clever tacticians from Starfleet are able to utterly fool their enemies. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Chekhov just sitting there reminded me a lot of Star Trek V when... Uh, when when Spock is sitting there in the command chair of the Bird of Prey, uh-huh. I yep. think that uh, I think that's what they were going for there. Oh, really? I don't kind know. A, don't you? Uh, another moment like that, but with uh, Chekhov? Yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah, could be. I gotta ask right off the bat. Uh, okay. Wait, the the thing that most that I most question is: Didn't they have a bunch of Tabukan ships before? I yeah. mean, earlier in the series. Mm-hmm. And I know many of them were destroyed or disabled by the Excelsior, but I didn't remember them being down to two ships. Right. But by the end of this story, that's exactly what there is. Vodran ship and Heralds. That's it. And it's like, uh, well, wait, uh, okay, I'll just go with it. Yeah, well, we, we mentioned that something? before, that, that, that they always seem very inconsistent on the number of ships that were available. Right. So right. one minute they would send in like what uh, four or five and the next they would send in 24 and the next time and they had two or three again. Right. Well, It was whatever the plot deemed. <laughs> well this was definitely the smallest number of Vodran ships. I mean uh, 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 right. ships being fielded by them. So. Yeah, and, and it's funny. What did what did she really... I mean, I guess she thought her son was going to have her back. So I guess that explains why she was so confident with just the two ships. Right, and they really shouldn't have been. But, you know, they thought there were no uh, Starfleet ships around, right? <laughs> well, they knew the Enterprise wasn't too far off. And the trap is sprung. <laughs> Anyways. Well, they, they actually saw the Enterprise and the Excelsior leave the asteroids. Oh, that's right. You know, so they so they knew they were they were both back, but they thought they were on their way back to the planet. So, hmm. yeah, and again, it seems like the planet is really far away from this asteroid field. Right. Yeah. Which the asteroid belt in our solar system is? Yeah, it's beyond Mars. So who knows? Yeah, 
But Mars, I mean, if you have a ship that travels the speed of light, warp Mars speed? is not far at all. Yeah, that's true. And of in course, we know speed. that you can go at warp speed uh, in planetary atmosphere, so what the You heck? can now, yeah. You can now, apparently. Anyway. Okay. No, I thought this in- the ending was a little anticlimactic that just, you know... The the I mean we, we talked about it last time issue or episode eighty five we thought it was a it was obviously some sort of trick that the station was blowing up mm-hmm. so that wasn't a big surprise um, right the queen falling for the old text message from someone's stolen phone bit nah. a little <laughs> a little hard to swallow but okay we'll go with that yeah I mean how do they know that in security situate or you know so so they're too backwards. To be able to scramble uh, an audio message, if not a video one, they got to resort to text messaging. And I did think it was funny that they were praising him for being so smart. Oh yes, he's so smart to actually send a uh, uh, you know code red text message instead of you know <laughs> chancing a video. And right. Like, really, that seems backwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think any or at sufficiently... least have some sort of codes or something to let you know that it's the right person, right? But these guys are amateurs, right? Apparently, apparently, technologically backwards amateurs. Uh, if they uh, they don't have decent uh, encryption techniques for audio or video transmissions, but whatever. Yeah, and I did I did kind of like how the Romulan maybe he knew all along that this wasn't going to work, so he just let her take the fall. Oh yeah. I mean, how okay, so he sits down and starts playing a liar, which kind of looks like Spock's liar. So, well, okay, we'll get back to that. So he sits down and starts playing this instrument, and it's obvious he ain't going to move nowhere. <laughs> and, 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 and I think he's baiting her. I, I agree with you. I, I think that's where he's baiting her. He's, kinda, he's showing, yeah, I got all the time in the world. Eh, I got to do anything. And I think he knows she's going to, oh, I got to really impress uh, the boss, you know, or something. Right. Okay, well, you okay, you do that. Yeah, you go right ahead. <laughs> Worked out well for him. He just sat back. If they would have won, he would have taken all the glory. Yeah. And they lost, so he just sleeks off to the neutral zone. Right. But you know, it's it's a decent I mean, those those I assume that's a that's a fairly powerful warbird. So, or bird of prey, whatever. I'm sure it's pretty powerful. And, you know, if they had some, some cojones to them, they could have stepped in in some of the attacks of the Excelsior when it was alone. And, you know, they could have just taken the weapons before the Enterprise could get back. But they right. didn't. So, you know, so, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, the Admiral is showing the uh, slimy underbelly of the Romulans, I think. Right. Which yeah. is very Romulan. Apparently. They're ruthless, but, you know... I, I thought they were a little more uh, aggressive, you know. Right. Uh, I mean, they're I mean they're not like Klingons. I mean, Klingons would never do this. Are you kidding? Get somebody else to do your dirty work? <laughs> Get out of my way! Let's. No, I'm going to do it yeah, myself. They've, they've always implied that the Romulans were conniving. Yeah, but conniving, smart, dangerous because they're sneaky, but also pretty aggressive. At least the Romulans we're dealing with in the ongoing series certainly are. No, the they, Romul- those they have a lot more to... What? The Romulans haven't done anything in that ongoing series yet. Except take the red matter that was given to them. I'm talking about Nero. Nero's. 
I'm talking about Nero. Oh, okay, okay. But, of course, then again, Nero has a lot more urgent motivation right. than these guys. Yeah, yeah I, I always liked the Romulan Empire because it was like always the ultimate wild card because, you know, depending on the story, it could either be for the Federation or against the Federation. You never knew. And if they were against the Federation, it would be bad news. But, you know, well. Like, they play that up a lot in Deep Space Nine, which I really liked, because during the Dominion War, you never knew well, which side yeah. of the fence the, the, the Romulans were on. And, and and I was kind of surprised when you were talking about that, about uh, never knowing whether they were for us or against us. I mean, except during the Dominion War, where everybody had to look at the Dominion as being the real threat, currently. <laughs> right. um, except for then, they were pretty much always against us. Yeah, but even... I mean, even in like the the episodes where you know um, they were stealing the cloaking device and stuff. I mean, you, you always had sympathizers or whatever that were willing to you know sleep with Spock and then let him get away, things like that. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, they were. But they were... she was she was in love with that hot Falcon <laughs> during the Enterprise incident. Come on, right? So, so they can't all be bad. Wow. Well, okay. <laughs> she she was just taken in by that, you know, Vulcan mojo. That's true. And he wasn't even going through Pond Far. He was just a stud. Ex- apparently, yes. Amazing. Anyways. Anyways. So did you notice that these aliens uh, looked like green-skinned Ferengi? I-, I didn't notice it until this issue. Oh, hmm. Interesting thought. I mean, just, just their, their head and ears. Um, I... I got to go back uh, and pull up a picture. Um, I thought they looked like the Green Goblin kind of thing myself, but um, yeah, well, just, yeah, like their 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 brows and their ears look very Ferengi. They're pretty big, yeah, and just the way they connect. You know, the brow comes up and then becomes the the upper part of the the ear lobes. Yeah, I I, I can see what you're saying. Uh, of course, they do have some. Uh, some differences too. Sure. Uh, when you get away from the the eyes and head, I mean, they got those red, those weird red eyes, you know, demon eyes. Yeah, and the and fangs. Then, and and right, the fangs coming up from the underjaw. So they got right. extreme underbite, and uh, they they I don't know what they, they look like a goblin. And then they got the the weird stuff on their arms and stuff, like cartilage coming out of the uh, the bottom yeah, no, sides I of their forearms. Yeah, I was mainly just talking about their their face and right. ears. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, you know most of them have hair too, and no Ferengi would have hair. Oh my gosh! <laughs> no self-respecting one. They should do an episode where like Nog grew hair, and and, and everybody thought it was a uh, you know a horribly taboo thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then he ends up going with long hair. Oh yeah, and oh, a earring. You're so such a rebel. Pierced his lobes. <laughs> <laughs> who would who would ever pierce their lobes? Oh, the humanity! That would actually be pretty funny. That yeah, I mean, considering uh, what a erogenous zone <laughs> their ears are for them. Right, and there's some analogies to humans that do stupid stuff like that. Not <laughs> stupid. It's a, it's an expression. They're expressing <laughs> expressing themselves when they put holes in their head. Which I'm not talking about your head. Well, your earlobes. I'm or your about nose. Spots. Oh, <laughs> that oh, wow, wow, wow. to the lobes. 
Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, well, good point. So, what about those uh, that Romulan liar? Yeah, what was so special about it? I mean, they're both Vulcanoids, so... You well, okay, but... but uh, this is okay. So this is the first time I've seen a Romulan with a liar. So, I mean, they, they come from a common ancestor a long time ago. So, so the liars have been around a long time, and so they both were on uh, on Vulcan prior to when the refugees left Vulcan. Right. That's yeah. It, that that's that's completely uh, uh, possible. It's just that I didn't know when that instrument particularly came into use. Right, I think so. it was created by Philip Lyre in the uh, the <laughs> Philip Lyre. Uh, I'm just I couldn't make up you know no. some, some pre there... uh, pre uh, uh, days. Yeah, so Phil Phil Lyre. Oh yeah, that's a <laughs> wacky Vulcan there. <laughs> yeah, no, I I get your point. Um, yeah, yeah I, so I, he... I just didn't know. I, I was just kind of interested in you know. Okay, cool. They both got liars, and they look pretty similar to each other. But there are diff- there's marked differences between the admirals and Spock's. It's just you know, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what what's the backstory? Right. I don't know. Hmm? You can just make one up. Yeah. And having them both be pretty fully developed back in the how long ago was uh, the split? Uh, Do you remember? Long time ago. Yeah, like like. Uh, thousands of years. Right. Because right. they're already a very long-lived species right. anyway, so... Right. For them to have thousands of generations, that would be... It would take a while. A very long time. Right. Cool. Yeah, good point. If I may change sure. the subject a little bit. Please do. I didn't like how McCoy says that they were left... Or was it Kirk? Said that uh, McCoy was on the planet by himself. When those early issues of this series, you Kirk says you're taking a security force to oh, the planet. Yeah, yeah. And That's then true. we never saw him again, except yep. for that one that you pointed out. Yeah. Uh, and then here they're kind of acknowledging that there wasn't any there. So, which is it? Yeah, exactly. Keep it yeah. keep it straight here. Right. Yep. Good point. They keep on changing things. Stay consistent. Right. It was only six Donovan is watching. Ago. Donovan is watching. Keep it consistent. And me. I brought the ship thing. All right. Anything else for this issue? Every time I saw Jarakus, Admiral Jarakus, he reminded me of a beefy Sarek. I mean, he was really reminding me of a Vulcan. Where, yes, I know they look look pretty much the same, except for the uniforms and stuff, but... I was really getting, like, a Vulcan vibe off of this guy, and even uh, Sarek. Yeah, he looks a lot like Mark Leonard, yeah. especially in profile. I, right. I, I, I see exactly what you're saying. Right. Anyway. It looked like Mark Leonard with skunk hair. <laughs> exactly. So they use Mark Leonard yet again, <laughs> but this time, uh, to make him look different, they, they, they put some white dye on his hair. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't look up the name, but, I mean, could it be possible that this is the same Romulan from the Balance of Terror? I mean, was his name... Jarakus? Jarakus. I don't know. That would be interesting. Are you I looking it, look up? it up? Okay, yes. well, that, that, that would be interesting. Since, obviously, 
it was Mark Leonard that played the uh, Romulan commander uh, right. in that Balance of Terror episode. Nope. No. The only Different reference guy. to Jarkus is these issues. Okay. There you go. But that would have been interesting. That would have been cool, huh? Yeah. Okay, that's uh, all I have to say about the conclusion to this rather long, multi-issued story arc. It, it was a tad long. It was a tad long. But the payoff! Ah! <laughs> now, uh, when they were detonating those two things of, of exploding warheads or whatever... Right. Those two pallets... Yeah, uh-huh. and that was all of it. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me, but I was getting a vibe off of that uh, that gold key issue where there was the two rival guys that had the same name, and they were well, I forget what was their name. I don't. I remember. Oh, you remember? Because they looked exactly the same. They've been oh the way they were they, drawn. Yeah, they and they even had the same name. It was like. Um, Oh man, what was his name? It's like yeah, so, Jerry number one and Jerry number two. Yeah, something like that. But when they didn't, and they were both, their... they both looked like Lex Luthor or something. Exactly. <laughs> but they had the whole thing where they destroyed all the warheads in that issue, uh-huh. uh, so they couldn't keep fighting. But it, it, it kind of, I mean, in that one, the warheads looked very contemporary, like missiles, and in this one, it looked like contemporary missiles instead of futuristic space missiles. Right. That's all. Yeah. Interesting point. Yeah, Although I really. must say, <laughs> not really. Well, I, I think so. Justin. His name was Justin. It was Justin, Justin. number one and Justin number two. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad you remembered that. Uh, um, well, since nobody's going to look it up, we'll just go with I'm right. No, I think you're right. That sounds very familiar. It does. That's why I said it, but I don't remember for sure. Yeah. Well, anyway. that's odd because I tended to memorize those gold keys. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> shall we go on to issue number 41? Oh, speaking of gold key quality stories. Uh-huh. <laughs> issue number 41? Yes, issue 41, in my opinion, is not the uh, greatest. Well, but... it's definitely the stinkiest one of this group. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the writing staff is the same. The difference is that the penciler is Rod Wingham. And the editors is Kim Yale and Robert Greenberger. So since it's Robert Greenberger and he hasn't been around for a while, makes me think this is a, a filler issue. I would agree with you. Yeah, because didn't Kim leave already? Yeah, Kim left and Robert's left. So it's like yeah. two old editors. Right. Hmm. Something doesn't so... smell quite so fresh on this issue. <laughs> so so maybe this was an old one they did most of the artwork the writing the artwork whatever they just thought it was so stinky they didn't want to put it in yet <laughs> or you're right it's it's just something they produce as a filler when they when they would eventually need it exactly and that's that's from what i've gathered from what limited stuff i know about the comic book biz that's how they used to do stuff they would they would have a story they would they would pencil it out and maybe just need to do the finishes whenever they needed to do that one. So they right. would like give a story to somebody that, that was, you know, applying for a job or whatever. Here, draw this. <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> and, and if and when they ever needed it, they would, you know, finish it and, and send it out as an issue. Huh? There you go. Yeah, so... Anyways, this issue is entitled Runaway. It came out December 1992. So the cover shows Scotty looking terrified, and he's staring at a blue electrical tornado. Oh, yes, it's a tornado. Uh, and it looks like the tornado is about to engulf him. And then the tagline reads, Mr. Scott, possessed, and he's only the first. If that doesn't get you, I don't know what would. The story starts off with the Enterprise in the dark reaches of space. They are assigned to investigate the disappearance of the science vessel, the USS Jonathan Levy. Unbeknownst to the crew, the ship is being followed by a blue energy tornado, just like the cover. And the tornado is thinking to itself, follow those life forms. In the mess hall, Kirk and McCoy are picking up their sandwiches from the food dispenser. They join Spock at the table, and they discuss the research that the Levy was doing on possible unstable stars in this area. While they were talking, the blue tornado streaks by the window, thinking to itself, so many life forms, so little time. In the transporter room, Scotty is working on the console. He inadvertently beams the tornado in, and the thing jumps on his face. As soon as this happens, Scotty becomes very giddy and affectionate. Uh, not only to the machines, but uh, Trunsky arrives, and he literally picks her up and twirls her around, saying, I love this ship. He places her on the ground, and he leaves the transporter room. Once in the hallway, the tornado leaves his body, and Scotty drops to the floor like a sack of potatoes. Uh, and then he thinks to himself, uh, you know, how did I get here? And he doesn't seem to have any memory about what just transpired. On the bridge, Spock reports that they are picking up some strange stellar oddities. Savick states that she has had some experience with this type of phenomenon, and Kirk orders her to work with Spock and leaves the bridge. In Chekhov's quarters, he is painting a still life, uh, not a portrait, but he's doing a still life painting uh, of some great Russian contributions to the world. Uh, It consists of a bottle of vodka, a book from the literary, I guess he's uh, famous, the literary uh, playwright Chekhov. Get it? It's Chekhov. And a copy of War and Peace. So basically it's a painting of a bottle of vodka and two books. He is about done, and it looks almost photorealistic. It's a masterpiece. That's when the tornado swirls around his head. Suddenly he's crazy, and he's throwing paint all over the place. He eventually completely covers his painting with just blobs of color. He looks around in shock as soon as the tornado departs. In the Enterprise's firing range, Kirk is using an old-school revolver to punch holes in a paper target. Uh, The paper target is of an alien, so at least he has that going for him there. McCoy is telling him how many of the crew are now complaining about having dizzy spells and short blackouts in their memories. McCoy states that Spock is checking into the possibility of a connection between these blackouts and the stellar phenomenon. At that moment, Spock calls in and reports an energy anomaly has closed in at 10,000 meters and is holding course with the Enterprise. Kirk breaks his commu- or 
Kirk breaks the communication and heads to the bridge. And there is no explanation as to why he's using such an ancient firearm. In the lab, Savick is working on the recent findings when the blue tornado arrives and causes her to act very unvulcan like as she spins in her roller chair. She gets up, ready to leave, and bumps into Spock as he's arriving. They seem to stare into each other's eyes for a little too long, and then Savick runs away. As the tornado leaves her body, the red alert sirens start to wail. On the bridge, Chekhov informs the captain that they are surrounded by energy anomalies, and we are treated into seeing several different colored tornadoes whirling through the ship. Eventually, these new tornadoes seem to track down our blue one in the turbo lift shafts, and there is a merry chase ensues. Eventually, they all arrive on the bridge. The new ones inform Kirk that they are only tracking a little runaway, and that they will be returning to the stars, claiming that they are the reason that these stars are remaining in balance. They depart, and the Enterprise is almost immediately hailed by the USS Levy. The captain of that ship says that their communication gear went down, but they stayed to monitor the fluctuations in these stars, the same way Spock and Savick have been monitoring. Kirk is pleased that everyone is safe and sound, and he warps to their next adventure. The end. Okay, yes. (laughs) Another thrill-packed filler episode. Yeah, this one was just so bad. Yeah. So these little tornadoes, it's a little wayward little fella, huh? Kind of like Trelane or something, or what? What, wait, yeah, what is it? I don't get it. So they're retreading the Trelane idea, Square of, Square of Gothos, somehow? They're, they're channeling it, or what? Well, I hope not, because uh, the Squire of Gothos will show up in about three issues. So if so, they... Uh... Why why would they retread that when they're about to bring Trelane into the series? Anyways. Well, if it is filler, it's bad timing to bring it out. It, it reminded me a lot of that issue of The Next Generation that we did a couple of episodes ago where that one stellar phenomenon from that Thing. star you know, froze everybody except Worf and then turned itself into... Right. Um, <clears throat> What's her name? Yep. His uh, deceased wife. I can remember Justin number one and Justin number two, but I can't remember what her name is. That's okay. It'll come back to us. Maybe. Anyways, Maybe. did did you not, uh, you didn't, did you think the same thing? Um, I thought Trelane. Okay. I didn't think that, uh, that issue that you had mentioned. But that one, too. Yeah. There's another one. There is another one. Now, I was more focused on the idea of the wayward child. Right. Um, and then the parents coming to get it at the end, which is pretty much what happened in Square of Gothos. Right. Um, but at least he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't a, a runaway. He was, he was at his house. I mean, it was Kirk and them who showed up. Right. Well, I thought everything on that planet, he had just whipped up. Yeah, but I think he was where he was supposed to be. It was like the Enterprise oh, just showed up at his playground, and 
he started screwing up. Oh, his playground. Is that what that was supposed to be? I don't okay, know. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, there you go. Could be. I always thought that. You know, he's a little kid, and yeah, you go sit on this. <laughs> so he's playing around in the sandbox. That's the way. On I that it. planet. That's the way I yeah. always saw it. Yeah, that might have been it. That might have been it. Yeah, I didn't think of Trelane as a runaway per se. No. Where this obviously is, but yeah, I, but yeah, yeah, I totally get your 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 point about the uh, parents have to come in and get him. Right. But this one, I mean, it was a tornado that would go on to somebody's face, and then they would just start acting stupid for a minute <laughs> or two, and then it was it was yeah. gone. Right. I mean, it, at the beginning, it sounds so menacing. So many people, so little time. You know, it thinks to itself. And then all yeah. it does is makes them a little giddy for a minute or two, and then, then they're over. And then leaves. Now, I think since the beginning, it's the first time we see it where it goes... Whoa! Follow that. Follow those life forms. It just—I—I I didn't take it too seriously. Oh yeah, it does say whoa. But I, I skipped that part. You didn't know. Nonsense. You didn't know. <laughs> Why? Well, yeah. So I, I didn't. I you know I thought this was going to be a throwaway episode. Um, but yeah, I—I I mean, I, 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 more of a light episode, right? You know, when I first pulled it out of the box and I saw which one it was. I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, crud. I hate this issue. <laughs> and then I started reading it, and I'm like, oh, wait, I've never read this issue. I- I'm thinking of another one. No. Oh. Because there, there was one of the uh, original DC run where it's Spock, or Scotty on the cover, and he's being possessed, or he's convinced that there's gremlins on the ship. And right. for whatever reason, this cover made me think of that one, and I thought that this was the the Gremlin issue, which oh. is a horrible issue. Uh, mm-hmm. So <laughs> I went from "Oh my god, I hate this issue" to starting it. Oh, I haven't read this one. It might actually be good. To "Oh my god, I hate this issue." <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me try to turn down the negativity a little bit by saying my two things I like about this episode or this issue. This issue, okay. Only two things. That's it. <laughs> what I really liked was how Savik bumped into Spock while under the influence of the uh, wayward child uh, tornado entity mm-hmm. and perhaps caused Savik to think of Spock in a different way than she has ever thought of him before. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so you, I kind of like so that. So you thought that maybe Spock got a little out of that? Ah. Uh, because he does I say think maybe he did. He yes. Like, oh, fascinating. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you did find her when she was a child. I mean, well, a teenager or something. Right. And she did find so. you when you were a child. Oh! <laughs> right. Yeah. Search for Spock. So, I just thought this was just a, a little kindling moment. Yeah, I agree that was that. a cute little moment. Yeah, so... I don't know if it was the kindling moment that got her to think of maybe a different relationship, or maybe Spock to think of a different relationship, but hmm, interesting. (laughs) Okay, so the second one is Kirk playing with the revolver. I thought that was pretty cool, even though it really doesn't make any sense. I mean, sure, the ship's stores can make anything, probably. I mean, you know, pre-replicator. But I thought, okay, since when does Kirk do target shooting with a a six-gun? So you liked, it, it you just liked seemed, that. Well, I kind of liked it. I, I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, although it made no sense why he would be doing it. Yeah, I just if if it was supposed to be in there and it wasn't some sort of mistake, 
I wish they would have just kind of acknowledged, you know, it's due to his fascination with antique stuff or whatever. Right. You know, like the glasses from Star Trek Four and things like that. Right. Uh, but they don't, there's nothing. It's just like, yeah. this is this is normal. <laughs> well, I will say one thing. I mean, the only thing that has happened in the past that kind of gives any kind of hint of this, remember when they went to that uh, that planet and they, you know, the landing party, you know, Kirk and the boys, they end up being confronted with the Tree of Life coming out of the ground or whatever, <laughs> and so all these things are happening, and yeah. their, 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 their thought processes are turning into reality, whatever. Right. And, of course, where does Kirk end up? He ends up in the Old West. No, that's where know, getting Spock into... thought Kirk would end up, because of the, the previous issue of, or the previous episode of Star oh, Trek, the original okay. series. Okay. Okay, well, but, but the main point is, they're showing that Kirk, apparently, has, has an interest in the West. Right, because of that, that, that episode uh, of the original series, where he, he went to the West. Yeah, right. The, the, the original, there was, I mean, the real original series. Yeah, there, I mean, was, there was a few episodes where they went TV into the show. Wild West. Well, I know, but did Kirk have particular interest in it? That's what they were, I they were implying that in that, in that uh, Tree of Life issue, so I'm, I'm going to well, go they, with yes, but it, I didn't yeah, remember. Yeah, well, it. I agree with the Tree of Life one. I just don't... Oh, are you talking about Spectre of the Gun in the original series? Where the, it's the Wyatt Earp thing? Well, see, but wasn't that like a parallel Earth or whatever? That wasn't really uh, Kirk's fascination of... Well, I agree. I, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, the, the only thing that I'm aware of was that issue that we were talking about you know, when they were on the Tree of Life planet. Yeah, but That's the only thing I'm aware of. But every, everything in that Tree of Life issue was yeah. borrowed from some other episode of the show. So I'm assuming that okay. it probably did but, have some sort of tie-in. Okay, but I don't know what, they, what it was. I, I don't either, because I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little lacking in my memories of the original series. Right, so... Either it's something that they decided to make up, which I doubt, or you're right that it's a tie-in to something that's gone before, which I would agree to the possibility of that. I just don't know what it is, right? Uh, other than that issue, it, it the, might be uh, that Specter of the Gun episode because don't they? It's not a parallel Earth thing. Don't they read Kirk's mind, and that's what he was thinking of? So they create the world around. Is that what they did? They read remember. Kirk's mind. I don't remember either, because it was a terrible episode. <laughs> I really hate episodes like that. Oh. Well, Sorry. Doctor Who did it, right. too, remember? I know, with, with I know. William but I just... Hartnell and the OK Corral? Yeah, well, that might be, but it's like, <laughs> oh, I just, I just don't like stuff like that. No. I like things more grounded and something a little more realistic. I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I know it's Star Trek, none of it's realistic, but I'm just saying. You know what I'm saying. I hear you. Okay. All right. So I agree with your uh, I, I agree with your first point about it being one of the the the, the positives of the issue. I, I don't know about the second one. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of wonder kinda if cool. you know that in the script it says Kirk is at the firing range, and then the artist, not being that familiar with Star Trek, drew that. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's uh, that Weinstein did that okay uh, but who knows yeah <laughs> or maybe the artist uh maybe you're right maybe the artist said hey you know i'm doing a few sketches uh what if we give kirk a six gun 
Is it Weinstein? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That sounds good. Yeah, go ahead. Do that. <sighs> Anyways. And it's funny, too, because uh, I don't know if you've shot a gun before, but if he was was shooting, you know, a cannon like that. One-handed? Well, one-handed, but um, it's the sound. You know, they've got no protective gear as far as you can see. No, no. Kirk does. McCoy's right next to him. Kirk does. What? McCoy doesn't. McCoy has his fingers in his ears. Oh, man. Did I miss that? Damn. Yeah, he's wearing earmuffs. Oh, okay. Well, that's better. Yeah. Because let me tell you, without him, and, and quite frankly, McCoy putting his fingers in his ear, that ain't going to do it. Right. And they're in an enclosed spot. I mean, usually when you go when you fire those kind of guns, you're outside. And they're still loud. Oh, they're still loud. And then now you're talking yes. about being inside a submarine and doing it. <laughs> Basically a submarine, yes. Yeah, you're going to blow everybody's ears out. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Uh, I was trying to think of another positive. I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't horrible. But... <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's as good as it gets. I mean, the, but, the whole, but, but it, the it, whole it, turbo lift chase reminded me a lot of... Um, you know, Star Trek Five when they're flying uh-huh. up and down the uh, turbo lift with the jet boots. Oh, right. But, um, yeah. I don't know. Didn't didn't care for that. Yep. Well, it was nice of them to make the three tornado entities all different colors, so we could tell the difference. Isn't there four? Four. I, is there four? Three? Oh, yeah, you're right. There's only three. I so think it's only a, three. Mom, dad, Mom, and, dad and, and little kid. And little tyke. Who's a bad, bad tyke. Yeah, he is. <laughs> but heck, if you had the ability to just travel through space and like go wherever you want to, right. you know, hey, why not? I'd, I'd be going too. Yeah. Well. Okay, and, and how about you know the Jonathan Levy just popping up at the end? Oh, yeah, we're fine. Oh, we just had some communication problems. Yeah, like, ah, we're, we're fine. As soon as the tornadoes take off. Yeah. Boy, that's right. a coincidence. Well, you know, were, were they insinuating they might have been, uh, you know, part of the problem? Well, I, I mean, think that's what you were know. supposed to think throughout the whole issue, that yeah. that these tornadoes somehow destroyed or incapacitated the Jonathan Levy. Levy, right. But then, oh, no, he's just my little kid. I'm going to take him home, give him a spanking. Ah, yes. Oh, and by the way, here's the Jonathan Levy that we did not molest at all. Nah. <laughs> they just had some calm problems. It was- okay, my my last comment. Before I'm done. How did you like the rainbow effect coming out of the back of the engine uh, of the Enterprise's two nacelles and impulse engine? Well, I thought it was good because that's how it looks like in the movie. So it was so it was so so rainbowy. <laughs> so 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 they show stuff coming out of the uh, the impulse engines, too. Well, on, on the movies, they show it coming out of every part of it. It's like a rainbow effect throughout the whole ship. Oh, the whole back of the ship. Right. Now. Yeah. Well, this is sh- th- this makes it look like thrust. Yeah. And it's coming yeah, from the saying, three engines. I, I just kind of got the feeling that it was just like the the rainbow effect that's said in the movies. Yeah, which I don't like by the way. No, I don't like it either. I think it looks cheesy. I think it was something they came up with in Star Trek the motion picture and they couldn't stop doing it. Oh, sure they could. Well, they could have, but how do they explain it? Uh, like, they have to explain anything. 
<laughs> I mean, come on. Oh, they, they, yeah, okay. It's a reboot, but look how many things they redid in the uh, 2009 movie. The whole transporter effect is wacky. Well, every, even, every, even every Star Trek movie, the transporter effect was slightly different. Yeah. Well, really? Yeah. Well, in the, like, in, the, in, in the next in the I agree that things were a little bit different between Toss and T and uh, TNG. Right. Uh, so I, 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 I'm fine with that, you know, different time periods, whatever. But they changed it in the, uh, in the Toss movies? Yeah, if you watch the motion picture, it's like a column. Like this light oh. column comes down and, and they materialize within it and then the light column goes away. And then in right. each movie, the, the little pattern is, is yep. always slightly different. Oh, well, in that case. Why couldn't they get rid of the rainbow? <laughs> I don't know. Well, probably because they were using stock footage from Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> <laughs> mm. That probably played Could more be. into it than anything else. Could be. Could be. All right. I think we've beaten this one up enough. Do you? Oh, yes. Oh, well, I got one more thing. What about... Okay. Why did they... I didn't put it in the synopsis because I didn't want to talk about it, but I want to get your opinion. Yes. Why the whole page of them getting their sandwiches from the mess hall and telling you what they're having? I've got yeah. turkey on pumpernickel salad, no dressing, and orange juice. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, that is just an odd thing to, to waste a whole page on. Well, it was a filler within a filler. <laughs> anyway. Shall we go on to issue 42? Yeah, let's do that. For a little adventure, which just happens to be the title of this one. Published date, January 1993. Yes, we're in 93. Okay, so the creative team, again, is pretty much the same as issue 40. I think they're all the same, in fact. Yeah, they are. Alan Gold is editor, Arnie Star Inker, etc. Yep. Okay, so they're all the same. The cover shows a hairy, wookie sort of alien, complete with a bandolier picking up a second, smaller, purple-skinned alien wielding a metal wrench. Scotty and McCoy look on in dismay. Blocky white text towards the upper right says, The Trouble with Shore Leave. Our story opens with Dr. McCoy rolling up his sleeves and getting ready to undertake a challenging task. He asks out loud, to no one in particular, how he let himself get talked into this. Almost immediately, he states, Never mind, I remember. Someone else in the room says, This can't be allowed to happen now. I'm not ready. McCoy asks Mr. Scott to wipe the sweat off his forehead. Scotty does so with a sly smile on his face. He continues to be supportive as the good doctor continues to complain and asks Mr. Scott to shoot him next time he talks about wanting a little adventure. The close-ups end as a two-page spread shows the full room that also contains three short purple aliens, in addition to McCoy and Scotty. One is on the table, apparently ready to give birth. The other two are standing next to the mother-to-be. The second standing male is silent and looking on with concern on his face. The second female has some kind of head ornament that makes her look like an important leader. The standing female repeats the little mother's urgent request to stop the birth. Now! It can't happen now or in the current location. Exasperated, McCoy says, tell that to the baby. 
and thinks back to himself how this all started two days ago. The scene shifts to two days ago, and McCoy is asleep in a lecture hall being awakened by Scotty. The last of the attendees are heading for the exits. Scotty asks McCoy how much of the lecture he slept through, to which McCoy replies, How am I supposed to know I was asleep? He goes on to blame his spontaneous snoozing on the comfortable lecture hall chairs. How do they expect anyone to stay awake in these things? Scotty admits his technical seminars have been quite boring also. They conjecture that either they are old dogs not willing to learn new tricks, or they are both too experienced to absorb anything new out of the lectures they have been subjected to so far. Either way, they need something to stimulate their old weary bones. Scotty suggests scotch, and McCoy suggests an adventure. McCoy's solution wins. They begin to discuss what kind of adventure when they hear loud voices nearby. One voice is loudly complaining that their deal was broken. A second voice addresses a Captain Okron, saying that the deal is intact because the ship is spaceworthy. The captain replies, saying the ship is a bucket of bolts, that we were lucky to get this far in. McCoy pushes Scotty quickly towards the voices as a possible source of adventure. Scotty is hesitant as he sees it more likely a source of trouble. It turns out a Bin Zalan family of three had contracted Captain Okran, a Spanaglan, to fly them to a colony world using the family ship. Halfway there, they stopped on a starbase where the captain jumped ship due to the dangerous condition of the Bin Zalan's vessel. After a vicious argument that came down to a minor amount of violence, the captain storms off and leaves the family high and dry. McCoy interjects to see how they can help. At first, the prickly matriarchal leader of the family named Sova was not open to listening, but begrudgingly gave McCoy the floor. McCoy did a good sales job pointing out their daughter's likely need for medical assistance and Scotty's ability to help with their ailing shuttle's engines. When he finds out that their services will be for free, Sova takes them up on their offer. During the walk to the family ship, Sova tells them of their departure from Benzala due to religious persecution. They are the first of many cloisters to make the journey from Binzala to Arnibus IV. Sova says nothing will stop them from reaching their destination. Nothing. McCoy examines Darila and states her condition is very delicate. She should never have been taken on a trip like this until the baby was delivered. Sova replies that she had to come and she must deliver on Arnibus IV. McCoy asks why. Sova says their religion has a prophecy that states the firstborn on the new world will be a great leader, a savior of great importance. The baby must be born on Arnibus IV, and that's the end of it. At this point, I think it's pretty clear Sova is a certified psycho. Meanwhile, Mr. Scott is making his way down to engineering, where he can meet the ship's engineer. On his way down, what he sees makes him concur with Captain Okran's assessment that the ship is a bucket of bolts. Suddenly, a net drops on Scotty. 
Back in the examination area, McCoy is pointing out you can't just tell a baby to wait. It's going to come out when it's good and ready despite their best efforts. Sova says, no, it won't, and storms out. Foss, the father-to-be, timidly says, no one says no to Sova. The mother-to-be says she agrees with Sova for once. She likes the idea of her baby being the savior of her people. Back in engineering, the ship's current engineer, named Kali, is talking to Mr. Scott, who is suspended in the air by the net trap she sprung on him. She says she does not allow people to mess with her engines. Kali is a young girl, but apparently old enough to keep the hunk of junk engines working. She frees Mr. Scott, who takes a closer look around. Kali says that the engines are in terrible shape, but that is what happens when parts are scarce and the ones you can lay your hands on were not designed to work together. In the end, she suggests that maybe Mr. Scott and McCoy would be better off aborting the Good Samaritan routine. Later, Scotty is telling McCoy maybe they should reconsider helping Sova's little cloister. The ship's in bad shape, and even Callie is considering jumping ship since she is just a hired hand. They say it's dangerous, but they are unlikely to make it without them. They say it's a three-day voyage at low warp. The Enterprise could easily divert and meet them on Arnebus 4 to pick them up. Despite the danger and challenge, they decide to go through with it. After loading up needed supplies, they depart. When Sova asks McCoy to do everything he can to delay the baby's birth if needed, McCoy tells her he will do no such thing. The baby's health is his top priority. Scotty is below in engineering with Kali trying to keep the engines from blowing up. Meanwhile on the Enterprise, they receive McCoy's message asking for a pickup on Arnebus 4. Kirk orders Helm to set a new course. Over a game of three-dimensional chess, Kirk is complaining with a chuckle over McCoy and Scotty's harebrained plan to help the Benzalans. Spock is predictably confused over Kirk's incongruent reaction. Meanwhile on Starbase 99, an unidentified ship with weapons hot is approaching the station. Marshal Gallo of the Benzalan Security Command is looking for Sova's little group and accusing them of being dangerous fugitives. When they find out they are not at the starbase anymore, they begin sensor sweeps to pick up the trail. Back on Sova's ship, an explosion takes place in engineering. Scotty and Callie are okay, but an automated warning system bleats out an alert saying, Engine core, radiation leaks, imminent. To be continued. There you go. Huh? Yeah, that was huh? a good one. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a, bit of a cliffhanger. Indeed. Indeed. And every time so. they put somebody in jeopardy, they always yeah. have that one scene where Kirk's talking to Spock. Ah, I'm sure they can handle it. <laughs> they, they did that in the, the Tabukan syndrome too, right? I mean, they had almost the exact same scene. Oh, when the yeah. when the poop was really hitting the fan with uh, McCoy on the planet, right? He's just talking to Spock. Yeah, I'm sure he's he's just sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> exactly. Bored. Bored by now. Anyways, not anyways. not quite. Yeah, uh, this wasn't horrible. No, <laughs> that's a that's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> oh, that was bad. I'm sorry. No, it was it was good. <laughs> I, I yeah, not great, but you know, it, it's cool. Um, I gotta say though, I you know I really don't like that Sova woman. 
Da- dang, that's a, that's a nasty person. She is uh, feisty. F- ooh, feisty is a good word. Very good word. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get the point that they want to have the baby on the planet. I get what they're going for, but yeah, come on, I think they take it a little too extreme. Yeah, and, and yeah, I agree. And the thing is, Sova, she is like out of touch with reality. I mean, she's taking on Captain Okron, you know, kicking him and stuff. Right. And, and it's like this guy's big; he could probably swat her. <laughs> and then, and then she's she's telling McCoy, "The baby will not come out. That's all there is to say." And it's like, oh yeah, well, okay, shove it back in. Yeah, shove it back in. So you obviously don't care that much about the health of the baby. Or the what? Or you the daughter. Con- or, or the daughter. So you don't really, you know, you know I don't know. Mm. Like I said, she's taking it to the extreme. Right. And that took me a little out of the story. Yeah. So how do you like the two looks of Captain Okron between the cover and the book? Um, I mean the Wookiee guy? <laughs> yes, he looks like a Wookiee on the cover, but inside the issue, he does not look like a Wookiee. He has more of a you know big teeth, and he's you know kind of has a big face. Yep. He doesn't he doesn't look like a monkey. He doesn't look like an ape, which Chewie looks like an ape. Right. Yeah. No, he has the the pig face, and he has Wolverine hair. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So, again, probably for sales value or whatever on on you know in the comic rack they decided to uh, channel chewy a little bit i think <laughs> yeah i'll be honest uh when 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 you started with the synopsis and i looked at the cover i was like well who's that guy <laughs> it, took, <laughs> it took me a minute to remember the scene with the completely different looking guy uh, yeah a big guy a hairy guy but not the same way exactly so no, that was funny. Callie, Kali, however you pronounce it, I thought it was interesting that she knew about the uh, phrase of Good Samaritan, <laughs> considering that's an Earth thing and, uh, you know, she's a totally different alien. Well, you know. I, I mean, and they might not have meant the biblical sense. Just well, the word I, Samaritan might have translated. Well, and today, I mean, how many people know about this, uh, the, good, the, the, the origins of that phrase? I mean, a lot of people do. It's just I think there's plenty of people, especially young people, that probably have no idea about what a Samaritan is, or the, you know, the origins of that phrase. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they don't know the origin of the phrase, but I think they, yeah. there's a lot of people that... Oh, they know it. it. Oh, I completely agree. I think if I asked my sons, you know, they'd know, oh, yeah, Good Samaritan, I know what that means. But they may not, re- they may not uh, recall the biblical reference. Yeah, no, I, I get you on that one. Yeah. And also, her name's Callie. She's the feisty little engineer, young engineer. And uh, I, I don't know if I'm remembering this wrong, but as I was going through the synopsis, it was clicking to me that I'm pretty sure the feisty little engineer in Firefly, her name was Callie. I could be wrong on no, that. You're right. Uh, but okay. You might be wrong, but if you're wrong, I'm wrong too, because I had the same note. Okay, okay. Right. So, um... Yeah, coincidence. Or is it? Or is it? Exactly. What if Joss Whedon was a big fan of this issue? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe he's, he he remembered that, and uh, even if he didn't do it um, overtly, uh, or maybe he did, who knows. 
<laughs> I mean, he digs comic books. Yeah. He's written he's, some comic books. He's written quite a few. Yeah. And he's a fan of Star Trek, so it kind of makes sense. He's He might be a Star Trek comic fan. Oh. There you go. Could be. Uh, I didn't know he was a Star Trek fan. <clears throat> I don't remember that anymore. Well, I don't know for a fact. I just assumed. Oh, okay. And I think he probably is. Although, I, I like how Firefly was, like, like the anti-Star Trek. You think so? In a lot of ways. I mean, not saying that that would mean, indicate he doesn't like Star Trek. I'm just saying, it's the anti-Star Trek. I mean, the brown coats right, and the folks right, right, on, the, right. uh, on the Firefly are about as un-military as you can get. Yeah, I always thought it was a, uh, a, a nice little hybrid of Star Wars and Star Trek, where it was kind of the you know the Western in space, which I think okay. I always well, thought Star, Star Trek Wars part? was a little bit. Oh yeah, well definitely Han Solo's you know, you know he, he he's the most cowboyish. Yeah, and all the little colonies and stuff like that. Right. You know the the bar scenes and things like that that you yeah. see in all the westerns. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Translated, uh, I do like Firefly. But getting off of that, hmm. I thought it was kind of interesting how there's always got to be, or often there, often there is, a weapons-toting big bad guy that comes up eventually just to spice things up. And so, so was the case with this story with Marshall Gallo. So, and I was also kind of wondering exactly how powerful could Marshall Gallo's ship really be? I mean. I, I'm sure it could blow Sova's crap, uh, poopy little uh, spaceship <laughs> out of the sky, but it's like, yeah, that can't, that thing can't be any match for the Enterprise. Right. Which I'm expecting will come in just in the nick of time or something. Now, Who knows? I'm trying to remember. Did, did he actually attack the Starbase too, or no? No, he didn't attack. He just no. passed through. He was just, yeah, he was just being rude and demanding. And saying, turn them over! And it's like, Starfleet commander saying, eh, they're not here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry not to deny that request. And then he gets all pissy and stuff. <laughs> and then she says, fooled ya! They're not here! <laughs> yeah, I kind of like that they're trying to, you know, establish non-Enterprise commanders. Yeah. That they are, there are other competent commanders out there, but... Right. That's, that yep. try to do the same, you know, same sly tactics that Kirk uses. Uh huh. Oh, you got that out of the uh, the female commander of the starbase. Yeah, I thought maybe that's what they were doing. They only had one page to work with. <laughs> 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 maybe I was reading yeah. too much into it. Yeah. I, I, that's never... what I was thinking that they were trying to do. Right. Right. So, anyways, I, I don't know. I, I, there was a, there was. There was a lot in here that, that I thought was a little silly with the net and things oh, like yeah. that. Do they really have to do that? I, I just didn't get why they did that. Yeah. And or, I'm not blown away with the way the aliens are depicted here with the, the cone heads. Well, I, I couldn't quite remember, but these aliens remind me of like some other aliens. Like you're, Marvin the Martian. I don't know. You're thinking no, of the no, cone no, heads. Dan Aykroyd, Jane Curtin. Well, oh, they don't have cone heads. Yeah, they're pretty high. Oh, they, they, they got no, they got big heads, but but there's not cone shape. But I, I agree with you, huge foreheads. Right, right. Actually, you know, 
I mean, especially on the cover, she was reminding me just a little bit of Sinestro. Yeah, and and the leader. I was getting, but Sinestro with the the coloring. Uh, well, yeah, and I don't know. Sinestro seems to have a kind of a a, a biggish high forehead. Head. Yep, he does. Yeah. I mean, not as much as these guys, but some. Now the cover, they have a, a an, it's not quite as cone shaped in the cover as it is in the book itself. Right. They tone it down for the cover. Oh, okay. They thought okay. it would look too silly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, that makes perfect sense then. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's just funny when you see them like wearing bandanas and eyeglasses and things like that, and they still have this huge forehead. Yeah, they do have a huge, a huge cranium, very tall. They must be very smart. Right. But uh, they well, don't, they don't I don't, show th- it. I don't think so. They sure don't show, show it so far. <laughs> Well, you know how we only use a portion of our uh, brain power, like 10% of our brain power? Mm-hmm. They must use like four or three. <laughs> uh, let's, not, let's, not, let's not bash on these poor guys. No, I mean they're... Uh, we're, 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 we're judging a whole species based on four people. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, not, not to spoil anything, but in the, the last page they show the, you know, next month on Star Trek, and it shows the cover of the next issue, and they're holding a little baby bother being attacked by, uh, what's his name? Yeah, yeah, uh, Field Marshal, whatever. Yeah, so I, I guess they don't make it in time. <laughs> or they're trying to make you think they don't make it in time. Oh, you think it's one of those cover doesn't match the books could be. However, um, I think it would be more satisfying if somehow Scotty and McCoy figured out a way to uh, foil them on their own. But yeah, I hope the Enterprise doesn't be this. The you know the rescue them at the end. Right. I kind of like but having we'll a, showing them as competent and can think outside their their little role that they normally play in the shows. Right. Another possibility is they might figure out a way to evade them temporarily until the Enterprise shows up. Because then at least they showed enough gumption and brain power to uh, save the ship until help can arrive. Right. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. We only got to wait a couple more weeks and then we'll be reading that one. There you go. That was my last note. Anything else for you? Nothing else. I have no more notes on this one. All right. Well, uh, last time we did the original series, we skipped the Elsewhere and the Expanded Universe stuff. Uh, so we're going to cover October and November and December and January. But the good thing is is that January didn't have anything, so it's still only three months. So Okay. Uh, Shoot. So real quick, October had a Next Generation novel called War Drum by John Vornholt. And in this one, it's the uh, Captain Picard versus Klingons. Mm-hmm. And Worf leading a landing party uh, and kind of, I guess, getting torn in between the two again. Uh-huh. So it's a Worf episode. Okay. November had Best Destiny by Diane Carey. This is a sequel to Final Frontier. Uh, and this one has young Jimmy Kirk. I think he's about 12, 13, somewhere around there. Uh, getting into trouble, and his father, George, and his godfather, Robert April, must come to his rescue ah. in the <laughs> newly christened USS Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah, so in that, in, in those, in Final Frontier and Best Destiny, George Kirk served under Robert April as, hmm. on the Enterprise. 
Ah. And in fact, uh, George named it Enterprise in the in the in that first book. It's good stuff. You should read them. George named the Enterprise. Yeah. So, like in the uh, in the first Final Frontier, they're in the Enterprise, but it's not called that yet. It's called right. They might just call it Constitution Ship. I can't remember. Uh-huh. But then when it's all said and done, and you know, I, I was it George or Jay, uh, little Jimmy. I can't remember. One of the two, you know, kind of suggests offhanded that Robert April should name an Enterprise. <laughs> I'll have to go back and look to see which one. Well, which one. if it was young Jimmy, that really is placing that link yeah. between Kirk <laughs> and the Enterprise, which he keeps talking about. Maybe a little, uh, little mighty little early. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, it's they're good books, those two. Cool. Uh, December had... A uh, next generation novel called Nightshade by Laurel K. Hamilton. Laurel K. Hamilton, uh, she's famous for writing Anita Blake vampire hunter novels. Are you familiar hmm. with those? Not at all. They're, they're pretty popular. There's a whole series of them. This is her only Star Trek novel. Huh. But it's um, it's just your normal everyday you know, next generation episode. Ironically enough, this, this 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 book they've reprinted a few times with different covers, so it's either good or they're really trying to bank off of her <laughs> writing a Star Trek book. Right. Okay. The last one I, I skipped in November was a original series novel called Death Count by L. A. Graf or Graf, excuse me, and this one has to do with Andorians, an Andor- Andorian scientist fuels tension between the Orions and the Andorians. Tensions hmm. become dangerously close to full-scale war. Mm-hmm. And only Captain Kirk can stop it. <sighs> I don't know. I'm kind of curious on that one. I haven't read it, but I'm curious on that one because of I liked what they did with the Andorians on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see how much of that, you know, was that all just completely made up for Enterprise or was there some sort of basis on having the, the Andorian Vulcan Federation hostility thing. I'm thinking they just made it up for the show. but Yeah, I was kind of thinking that But too. I like the way but, they depicted the Andorians in there as a like a war race type thing. Oh yeah, nasty. And then I, I did like the uh, relationship that was struck up. Right, with uh, uh, what's his name? Jeremy Oh, well I forgot the act. Oh, you're, you're, you remember the uh you remember the Andorian's name? Uh, Captain Archer? I, I knew the actor who played him up until I started oh, talking. Oh, right. Because he's been in Jeffrey yeah, A Combs, lot of Star Trek. Jeffrey Combs. Okay. Yeah, he played um, he played several people on Deep Space Nine. And yeah. He was in quite a few episodes of Enterprise. And Enterprise I, I like him. He's he's good. Yeah. I, I, I really liked him as that. Uh, the Dominion. Um, Wayun? Was that his name? Yeah, something like that. I I liked him. He he was nasty. Yeah, that one. It, Dan- that, that dangerous. One, yeah, that one episode where Worf just twists his neck around. I I was shocked when I watched that the first time. I'm like, you can't do that. I love that guy. He's just <laughs> so evilly bad. I love him. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was it for the expanded universe. So uh, next week cool. when we do next generation, we'll have uh, quite a few episodes to talk about because deep space nine is also starting in january 
<laughs> getting the airwaves. Ah, very good. So, all right. Well, uh, so on that note, next week we will do Next Generation 40, 41, and 42. Sounds good, man. All right. Okay. All part of uh, episode 93. Cool. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for the review. Episode 92 is complete. Slam dunk. We, we nailed it this time. Oh, out of the ballpark. And such material we had. <laughs> yeah. Oy vey. Well, that, those, are, those are our best issues, man, our episodes. <laughs> we have so much to work yeah. with. Exactly. Okay. Right. Take care, everybody. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic, second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.